Welcome everyone to another episode of In A Nutshell, the fortnightly podcast hosted by Natural Gas World, where we look at the global news and trends in the gas industry. My name is Joseph Murphy, and today we are discussing the role of gas, the role that gas has to play in the energy transition and the attitudes of governments in the US and elsewhere towards the fuel. Joining me today are Peter Hartley, Professor of Economics at the Rice University's Baker Institute, and Michelle Michaud-Foss, a fellow at the Baker Institute also. Peter has worked over 25 years on energy economic issues in the areas of electricity, gas, oil, coal, nuclear, and renewables. Michelle likewise has many years of experience in energy and environmental research, consulting, and investment banking. So, uh, if I could kick off the discussion, um, we just had the US hosted uh, leaders summit on climate where leaders from the largest economies of the world set out bold ambitions to reduce their emissions and you know, transform their energy mixes in the years to come. Um, in the US and elsewhere, what role does gas have to play in these policies? No, well, I think the role like of gas off. is huge in more ways than one and in ways that people aren't even talking about because from natural gas we derive not only energy but also materials and most of what people want to build are uh, dependent upon hydrocarbon based materials and somehow that never is part of the conversation um, so what we do you know in in the natural gas business and and in our economies is we leverage the development of materials with the value of, of molecules as an energy source. And between those two things, what we end up with um, is, a, is, a, is affordable inputs for economic growth. Um, we can take natural gas, we can use it for direct heating, we can use it to make electric power, um, but we also take a portion of the natural gas stream and we make really vital important materials, whether medical grade plastics, uh, components for wind turbines, um, everything. And, and, and somehow in the conversations, that part of the picture, the materials side never gets discussed. I would add one other, uh, so I agree entirely with what Michelle just said, but um, uh, the other thing of course is when it comes to electricity generation, uh, the other point I would make is that um, natural gas has gained market share uh, not because of necessarily environmental issues although it is the least polluting fossil fuel but um, uh, you know for a number of other reasons like the development of high efficiency combined cycle gas turbines for example uh, which has you know, greatly increased the the economic competitiveness of ga natural gas um, the uh, the other thing is the relatively small size of combined cycle gas turbines. It's much mm -hmm. more compatible with more competitive electricity markets. So we were seeing, um, you know, gas taking market share from other fuels in, in electricity generation uh, mm -hmm. you know, well before anyone started talking about environmental issues or energy transition. So these uh, more competitive electricity markets, you know, important driver. Um, and the other thing, of course, is uh, fast start capability which makes uh, open cycle gas turbines uh, very important for providing ancillary services in electricity markets. And of course, uh, as we are adding um, intermittent and non-dispatchable generation to the system, particularly wind, 
uh, you need a lot more ancillary services, uh, a lot more backup generation, and that is uh, also favouring uh, natural gas. Um, and uh, the other thing I would, I would sort of point out is um, that um, uh, we've had increased efficiency uh, of, of uh, producing uh, LNG, transporting LNG and, and regasifying it and so on, and that's greatly extending uh, the world market for natural gas, leading to a sort of greater connection between markets. Um, and that's really helping uh, helping the use of natural gas as well. So I think there are a lot of uh, fundamental forces uh, that are driving a demand for natural gas that are uh, completely apart from uh, environmental issues or, or um, ancillary to them in some sense, I think. Mm -hmm. And, um, and um, going back to the uh, Leaders' Summit, um, was there anything that stood out to both of you? Um, some of the promises made. I mean, what were, how would you characterize the event as a whole? Put it that way. Start with hot that. air. <laughs> hot air. Talking about okay. a lot of hot air, literally. I mean, I think uh, we've seen these things over and over, these kinds of summits, and, um, uh, you know, very little has come of these kinds of things. Uh, talk fest, uh, you know, uh, and uh, I, I think it's easy for these politicians to make promises uh, many years into the future. Most, most of them are not going to be in office uh, you know, mm -hmm. way before any of these deadlines come. So uh, what does it really mean? Uh, I don't think it means much at all, actually. You know, people, human beings are really practical and pragmatic at the end of the day, right? And, and mm -hmm. people will do the things that are affordable, that make sense, um, and, and, and I think that that's the direction that everyone is moving in and to a large degree, natural gas in all of its uses, um, checks those boxes. And so I think that, you know, you can expect, um, a pretty healthy, um, role for natural gas in the mix going forward because there aren't very many ways of getting things done. Um, and it's, it's a, it's, it's a viable option. The other point, I sort of just picking up on what Michelle said, is too that um, you know, as we incorporate more and more of these uh, non-dispatchable and intermittent sources into electricity systems around the world, we, people are really uh, recognizing that we need uh, a lot of backup capacity. Mm -hmm. And in countries which have access to uh, hydroelectricity based on stored water or, or pumped hydro, uh, that's pretty good as a backup. But you take places, geographies, where we don't have uh, good access to hydro. Let's take, for example, in our case, the state of Texas, <laughs> USA. Mm -hmm. uh, very flat, you know, it's very hard to get uh, much hydro here. Certainly, uh, you've got run a river, but to get it based on stored water, don't have the elevation differences and so on that you have elsewhere. <clears throat> uh, the main backup uh, source in those geographies is natural gas and we're just discovering, picking up what Michelle's saying, as a practical matter, as you add these other kinds of uh, generating capacity to the electricity system, you're needing more and more backup, and uh, natural gas is, is filling that uh, hole. Can I just, can I take one of your later questions and pull it forward? Because this idea of backup, during our our freeze, our um, whatever we're calling it, the Texas Geddon, and I, and I know that you want to talk about that, but yeah, every, go ahead. every household that had a direct connection for natural gas use was better off than every household that didn't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are, there are really important practical considerations 
to having a diverse portfolio of energy sources and infrastructure. Um, I felt after the whole thing was over that that we should mandate direct connections for every household because if you're if you were all electric during that time period, you were really uncomfortable. Whereas um, people who had piped gas were able to have some heating, some cooking, um, ability to, to function. Hot water. Hot water, much better than everybody without it. And the other consideration, of course, is that we, in our drive to meet our, our energy transition goals that everyone talks about, um, relying on electrification, you're exposed you're much more exposed because literally electrification means above ground risk. So your systems are exposed to hazards, to weather and other things, whereas natural gas systems are buried. And so, you know, in, in, in many respects, um, you, you're providing an option, um, especially in temperate locations, um, seasonal locations, that's really important and important to keep in the mix. And I think sooner or later, you know, that is going to become even more important as, as people think about um, the best ways of, of, uh, of, you know, not only surviving, but thriving um, as you move forward um, in, in with these ideas. Actually, uh, picking up on that, I mean, let's stick with the Texas snow, snow beginning for a little bit. <laughs> it was interesting, um, you know, to think about here. So we, I just was making the point that that in Texas, our electricity system is very dependent on natural gas for backup. So, uh, so when you had, um, you know, the wind, uh, of course, uh, often the wind is not that strong in the winter here in Texas anyway, but uh, when it got even less, even lower than, than what we normally expect as a, a, a low generation from wind in Texas uh, during that episode, uh, we were even uh, extremely relied on gas and uh, we had some problems, and it, it appears that the major problem there was um, a lack of coordination between the natural gas system and the electricity system. So, uh, so you had um, gas compressors that had been converted from from running on gas from the pipeline to running off the mains electricity system. So, pick up on Michelle's point too about um, you know the fragility of systems where you you really depended on one electricity source. So, well, one energy source, I should say. So, when these uh, compressors are connected to the mains, and then uh, we had rolling blackouts, and people didn't realize that on some of these circuits they had gas compressors. Uh, so, the gas compressors were, were, were taken down, uh, and then you had uh, a, sort of a, a negative feedback. The gas compressors are taken down, the, the gas uh, fired plants started to uh, get less gas, so they couldn't produce as much electricity. Which then required more blackouts, which then shut down more compressor stations and so on. So uh, the big thing we learned is is that you really need to um, uh, try to keep it much, the system much more resilient. Uh, you know, in this case, uh, you know, if you don't go back to running these uh, vital gas facilities on electricity, at least make sure you know uh, which circuits <laughs> have uh, have compressors and things that are vital to to keep the gas system operating. Um, uh, so that uh, uh, you, know, you can prevent these blackouts. So, um, uh, so I think that this this uh, this episode, uh, you know, emphasised again how you can have these problems with with uh, uh, when you become too dependent on one source. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what you're saying is, um, it's not just it's not just about uh, you know supply diversification, having different sources of energy, but also having those systems 
well coordinated with each other um, mm. to to avert something like this happening. But there's another point to add what Peter said, and I think it's important for your discussion. Mm. Um, the other side of my household is a is a producer, oil and gas producer. Oil and gas fields are also electrified. Um, if you're a producer and you're conscious of emissions, you long ago swapped out diesel generation to for, for field operations. Um, and we're taking power from the grid. First of all, it was cheap, but second of all, it, it, it helps to solve um, a problem in terms of, of your emissions reporting. Um, yeah. Can you hold on just a minute, please? Um, Sorry. <laughs> at at any okay. rate, um, and and so so we end up with a a, a contradiction in which um, the uh, the drive to reduce emissions um, drove producers into the arms of of grid based electricity, and mm -hmm. just complicated the situation that Peter described. Actually, that, that I pick up from there too, which is. Um, Part of the story there, I think, Michelle, is the um, uh, the fact that we have uh, government, various government interventions in the into energy policy, which are aimed. At, you know, I mean, I don't think it's a great idea when you have something very complicated like the energy system, or even more, an electricity system. Uh, lots of engineering issues have to be handled. Lots of details that the average person, let's say the average voter, doesn't know about. That you try to run energy policy through through a democratic process. <laughs> People try to choose energy sources on. They don't understand how complicated um, uh, these systems are. But anyway, uh, part of the implication here in Texas, when we have production subsidies for wind, uh, you ended up uh, many times in West Texas, you know, where a lot of the oil and gas fields are, where uh, the electricity wholesale price of electricity was negative, okay, because you had a production subsidy and the, the wind producers uh, only get the production subsidy they produce. So they're willing to bid uh, a wholesale price of electricity that's minus, essentially minus the amount of the, up to minus the amount of the subsidy. As long as it's slightly less than the production subsidy, they still will make money. So uh, so you end up with these uh, incredibly low wholesale prices of electricity in West Texas, which then, of course, will encourage people to to use the electricity for for uh, for, their oil, for their oil and gas fields, like Michelle's talking about. So part, mm -hmm. part of it's driven by... Uh, these kind of interventions in the energy system, which um, uh, you know, over encourage some of these kinds of uh, uh, energy sources, uh, which then uh, can lead to price distortions and other kinds of distortions. What are we talking about? Mm -hmm. And um, Michelle, one one thing you said about um, one lesson from this uh, crisis should be that more more houses should be connected uh, to to gas supply. Um, of course, in some areas of the U.S., uh, the exact opposite opposite approach is is being taken. Uh, so you know, there's legis legislative uh, moves towards um, ending you know new connections of gas. Um, how would you characterize U.S. energy policy uh, as a whole? I mean, is there a lot of uh, how much pragmatism is there? You know, if you talk to people who are in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, Berkeley, where a lot of this stuff started, or in other locations where there are lively conversations about banning direct connections to gas, they aren't happy about it. 
Um, and and so, and in fact, there are several initiatives to try to block um, the bans um, mm -hmm. and try to come to common sense uh, about things. And you know, I think that Peter already alluded to to some problems that we have in our discussions. We we are we're letting our our we're letting misunderstandings about chemical and physical properties of energy sources and energy systems um, dominate ideas and conversations that people are having. And I think if we, if there was a better understanding of um, energy sources themselves, thermal properties, um, how to use different resources, the consequences of, of using some of the alternatives that, that people talk about, I think it would be easier to have the kinds of discussions that we're all trying to have, not just in the United States, but around the world. But I think these broad ideas uh, that are not founded in, in um, not grounded in reality in terms of how different systems perform, the consequences of, of different resources, the problems of introducing intermittency, um, the problem of relying on um, other forms of energy storage rather than than um, existing storage that's in the fuel. I mean, the wonderful thing about natural gas is that it's a store of energy until you use it. Um, mm -hmm. If you take that away, then you have to replace it with something else. And so you're putting pressure on the system and we keep creating these domino effects of, mm -hmm. you know, blocking one thing or 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 through mandates or incentives or other interventions um, in the market, um, creating a domino effect with problems at the next stage. And it only gets more expensive as you go along to try to adjust and, and uh, deal with all of that. And then, then you have crazy things like uh, in New York, you know, you have the, the um, governor <laughs> preventing pipelines being built and so forth. And then then complaining about the fact that the local utility, gas utilities, say they can't hook up any more households because it would uh, dangerously affect the pressure in the pipelines, uh, mm -hmm. you know, because they're not allowed to put in more capacity. And then you have also <laughs> things like in New England, <laughs> you've, got, you've got, because of the, the pipelines, uh, they can't be, but we've got all this massive produ production of natural gas in Pennsylvania. And then you've got in New England, you've got uh, Boston Harbour, you've got a ship from, LNG ship with bringing in Russian LNG, you know, <laughs> because you're not you, you're not allowed to build the pipeline uh, to take Pennsylvania gas uh, into New England. I mean, this is kind of crazy stuff that ends up happening. I think all of that proves, Peter, that we're just really good at creating contradictions. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, I mean, with with this with these kind of contradictory ideas in in play. Um, do you think there's a, a risk that we're creating some serious problems down the line in terms of underinvesting in in gas production in in building the infrastructure? We already talked about that uh, to meet you know future U.S. energy demand. A lot of our natural gas abundance that we have had in the past few years. I think a lot of people know this by now, um, you know, your subscribers and readers and, and, and visitors to your website and so on, uh, comes because we increased oil production, um, what we call light tight oil, and we have an increment of associated gas supply that has um, given us much more to work with 
Um, it's it's kept natural gas on the cheap side. Um, it's become very uh, available uh, for other things, not just for uh, energy use, but also for uh, materials. So we've expanded hugely our our offtake of natural gas liquids that that are part of all of this. Um, and and we've been through a very very interesting cycle of expansion of both upstream um, drilling and development in these tight plays um, and then midstream to expand offtake and downstream markets um, to expand uses. And all of this, of course, benefited hugely from a very uh, attractive oil price. Um, so we all know, and and I, I think Peter can correct me, but there was a um, you know, a data point that rolled around uh, just the other day that um, natural gas production in the United States, natural gas supply has is finally showing up as, um, uh, you know, having being reduced quite a bit, um, which is what you would expect. Um, all of the, the forward looks for oil production for the U.S. are that we will sort of stay in the 11, um, maybe 11 and a half million barrel a day output. Mm. That's lower than where we were pre-pandemic. We were at 13, which was, you know, very attention getting. That means um, less natural gas supply. Um, what, what I think the two pronged test in this will be, first of all, um, you will have to see an improvement in the value of natural gas itself, apart from all of this, in order to attract drilling. So our Henry Hub index will edge up probably, um, and producers will, will see that and be able to respond. Um, the second thing, of course, is the future of the business. And, and I guess I'm more concerned about this because I, I the weight of public opinion, peer pressure, whatever you want to call it, on the upstream businesses is huge. Everyone is trying to decide what to, re, what to invest in, how to reinvest. Everyone can see that demand is going to be robust for, for years on end, but, but, but companies are trying to satisfy shareholders, institutional investors, other stakeholders, uh, you name it, um, in order to defend their businesses. And the impact on CapEx is discernible. So even though the industry is continuing to invest globally, robustly, it's not easily done. And there are, there are gaps, uh, substantial gaps, um, in in capex commitments that uh, could lead to uh, some surprises and and there's there's some growing concern about that. Um, so you know well these things come together in a way that um, can be very difficult for um, for decision making for um, you know for managements to be able to move forward. I've even heard um, senior managers talk about whether they should be liquidating. Now they're assets, um, even natural gas in light of, of these trends. So it's not healthy. It's not a healthy environment for, for CapEx commitments. Um, and, and I think that, you know, this is something that we're going to have to seriously think about at some point. I think you ought to add to that. I would add to that. The, um, for certain areas, for example, let's take New Mexico, uh, the ban on, on, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, drilling on federal land is extremely important and is going to to have an impact. 
and they're talking about making it uh, harder also to get uh, new developments offshore. I mean, it's amazing you go overseas and you talk about the, the potential for US offshore oil and gas production and how it's all out of bounds. And people say, what? <laughs> we've got all these offshore, uh, we've got all these potential resources and uh, no one can uh, have any access to them. I mean, how does this make any sense? Uh, and then, of course, uh, I would also add in, in terms of policy uh, uh, roadblocks, what we were just talking about a little while ago, which is uh, the, the problems with constructing pipelines right, to get uh, natural gas from the fields uh, to, to where it can be used, uh, either domestically or even um, for export, uh, you know, to get natural gas from, from West Texas to, to all the LNG plants that uh, people would like to build on the Gulf Coast. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So, so here's a funny thing, though. Spe you know, in, in, back to the contradictions that we're so good at, at creating. Um, I heard an interview with a member of Congress who's actually from one of the areas that is trying to ban or, or impose bans on direct use of gas, new connections. Talk mm -hmm. about the usefulness of our natural gas exports in the world. So clearly, <laughs> from from the from one perspective. Um, you know, this is this is something to think about. Our uh, our product going into markets like Europe, um, providing an alternative and natural gas supply to customers there. Um, you know, countering uh, the Russians, if you want to be frank about it. Um, and 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 yet at the same time, coming from a location where constituents are, are completely apathetic to what it takes to develop the resource and, and properly and in a responsible way. So, uh, you know, if you're, if you're trying to run a company and make an investment decision, how do you, how do you, um, you know, deal with these things? Actually, your comments on, on uh, competition, LNG providing competition for, for Russia and Europe are very interesting. I had a, we had a graduate student here, uh, mm -hmm. the economics department at Rice, um, uh, and uh, Natalie Hinchy is the name. She, she did one. She, she did a dissertation on uh, some of the geopolitical issues surrounding gas. And uh, uh, one of the uh, papers she did, she looked at um, you know Lithuania putting an LNG terminal, and uh, she studied uh, how uh, within Europe the uh, rush, price of Russian gas. Uh, you could explain how it, how it varied across the continent, depending on how much competition uh, Gazprom is facing. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, part of the point she made was uh, these countries getting into to LNG it provides a competitive threat, and and automatically the <laughs> the price had to pay for Russian gas went down. Uh, and I think some of these geopolitical, speaking much much more generally than than just uh, gas competition in Europe, I think some of the geopolitical issues uh, are often downplayed. I mean, you think about. The United States. I mean, it's amazing. For many, many decades, right since the the energy crisis in the seventies, it's been a goal of administration after administration to have energy independence for the United States. Uh, here, you know, we with the development of of unconventional oil and gas, uh, in particular, the United States uh, was getting to the to the point where this dream was being realised. And then, what are we doing? Turning the back on these resources and walking away. Uh, in order to, if you think about it, uh, what what are this, what's the alternative people are pushing? Wind and solar power. So not only if you think about the United States geopolitical competition, not with Russia but with China, uh, you know, not only is uh, you know, China's becoming the biggest energy importer in the world, the United States, particularly if you think they've got uh, Canada next door and potentially Mexico, 
you take North America as a whole, the major um, uh, energy resources, uh, to, to turn your back on that uh, uh, seems to be kind of uh, uh, crazy from a geopolitical uh, standpoint, one of your biggest advantages vis-a-vis -vis, uh, China. But then to compound the idiocy, you push energy sources which require mineral inputs, you know, to exotic minerals and some not so exotic but important like copper, where China dominates the supply of those products. Uh, and so you're making yourself dependent on making your energy system once again dependent. But this time it's, it's, it's on dependent from production from a major geopolitical competitor. It just seems to be uh, nuts. And Peter, not only a competitor to the U.S., but also Europe. We're in this boat together, which is very interesting. So, I, you know, it's, it's but, but people are, are not very good at, at stitching all of these things together. And I think that's, you know, back to, to your initial question about U.S. energy policy. Um, when you have all of so many fragmented conversations and, and such a tough, it, it's so hard for people to see all of the pieces um, that, you know, you have value in, in an export um, with, that has geopolitical consequences, but for a practical matter is it, it makes a huge amount of sense in a, in a world where we, we, we like free trade. Um, but you only get it if you're willing to invest in the development of the resource in the first place. And investment in the resource yields so many other benefits um, in, in energy and materials. And it's just so hard to get people to be able to think about all of those things together and what the trade-offs are if you block any one of them um, or, or create situations in which you can't develop um, the value chains the supply chains in a in a in a way in, in a high integrity way, mm -hmm. and there has been a recognition in in most countries that uh, electrification isn't the it, it cannot do the job alone of uh, you know decarbonizing economies. Um, well, it's not going to do a lot of at all, probably. <laughs> Sorry, well, what you say? Uh, that's a different argument, but okay. So I mean, there's there's a recognition that you know, elect in some countries that electrification isn't the answer to to solve all of the problems with emissions. Um, but there's also quite a lot of anti-hydrocarbon sentiment. So the solution that's been put forward is hydrogen. Uh, you know, we're in the middle of a big wave of hydrogen interest. You know, hydrogen is the fuel that can uh, decarbonize. You know those areas of industry, etc., which are difficult to to decarbonize. I mean, what's your what are your thoughts on this um, this trend well, of, of this new wave I, of uh, hydrogen interest? I think part of the interest in hydrogen is it's it's not just as you're saying an alternative to electricity. Certainly, people thinking about it for for uh, industry and other kinds of uses uh, you know, where electricity maybe is not suitable, but you could use hydrogen. But mm -hmm. the other thing I think where some of this interest was stimulated uh, is the case of uh, Japan. Japan has to import a lot of energy, right? They don't have, well, they had nuclear, but, um, and you don't have to import very much uranium, I guess, to generate a lot of electricity. But <laughs> but uh, they still were importing a lot of coal and natural gas and, uh, and oil. And so, um, uh, you know, they've been part of the uh, drive behind uh, sort of, an interest in hydrogen. Certainly, I know in Australia, uh, it's been part of the drivers to, to uh, export uh, energy, in effect, uh, to Japan. And uh, 
uh, and I know Singapore has been thinking about this too. So you think countries like Japan and Singapore, they want to um, uh, commit to using uh, less fossil fuel, but they still have to import energy. Uh, so one way they can do it, they think, is is by importing hydrogen, right? So uh, you want to use the the um, and people look at the country like Australia, the the, the desert in northern Australia, uh, terrific uh, solar resources. Uh, no no one there to consume the electricity is being produced, right? So uh, so we want a way of uh, quote bottling up the sunshine end quote in Australia and and uh, exporting it to uh, Japan or. Or Singapore, and uh, the cases people are talking about, or maybe uh, down the track too, even country like China or whatever. Um, uh, and so, this is a way of getting renewable energy uh, from from these places uh, where there may be a lot of resource to places where there's a lot of demand. But of course, um, you don't just look at a map and 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 look at maps of solar resources and wind resources, and then and then sort of draw trade routes on them. <laughs> it's a lot. A lot of capital is needed. You know? People think sunshine is free and wind is free and these places where you get a lot of sunshine and wind, well, that's fantastic. We take that free energy and we're going to get it to, to places like Japan where they want to use it, but they forget that there's an enormous amount of capital needed. You know? uh, you not only have you got to build the, the um, equipment to harvest the sun or the wind resources, uh, you've then got to, of course, get access to water to, to produce the hydrogen. Uh, if you're going to transmit the electricity, I mean, the, the, if you're producing electricity, let's say in, in a desert area in Australia, you've got to get the electricity to the coast where the water is. You've got to build a lot of desalination plants. The transmission lines, you're not going to be using them at, at very high capacity. The amount of, you think about the amount of capital you're going to have to build in terms of the capacity to handle peak generation of electricity, but a lot of time you're not. Uh, producing at peak, you're producing off peak because of the intermittency of these sources. Uh, so, uh, so you, you, you know, you're building all this capital capacity, um, you know, to handle the peak. Uh, but a lot of times, you the utilization, you know, maybe thirty percent if you're lucky. Um, uh, and then, you know, you got to build all these desalination plants and so forth on the coast uh, to get the water. Or you don't want to be producing chlorine, you know, <laughs> with the electricity. <laughs> Um, and then, of course, once you've got the hydrogen, uh, you've got to transport it. Now, liquid hydrogen, hydrogen itself as a gas is incredibly low energy. So hydrogen is, is basically a way of transporting energy, not really making it, right? I mean, you, what you're doing is you've got some other energy source, you're then producing the hydrogen, transporting it, and then you, you're converting it back to energy at the other end. So it's a, it's a, transportation, a method of transporting energy, really, not, not a method of creating energy. And if you're going to, uh, as a gas, of course, is extremely low energy density. So if you're going to be transporting energy, you want to have very high high energy density because you know, you've got to spend energy carrying uh, carrying the uh, <laughs> the energy commodity. Uh, so you've got to convert the hydrogen either to a liquid form or maybe ammonia or something, and then and then uh, do, reconvert it the other. And if you think about liquid hydrogen, uh, much much colder. It's got to be much much colder than LNG. Uh, you need completely different ships, and uh, you use a lot more energy transporting it. And so, I mean, you start to think about a lot of these these problems. And of course, that's the alternative. Japan, of course, could use nuclear power at the other end if they wanted to produce hydrogen to use it uh, in place of some fossil fuels. You you could have a, a nuclear plant run at twenty four seven, basically, 
you're using all of that capital, uh, you know, twenty four seven, including the the electrolyzer and so on, and you got that hydrogen right there where you want it. Okay, <laughs> so um, uh, I I think it's just too easy to to look at something like a solar resource and say, um, here's the energy you need that's renewable, and we're going to use hydrogen to transport it. I, I think it's a lot harder. People don't do the hard-headed calculations. Um, so, uh, but I've, I've probably said enough. I should let Michelle get in for a comment. Well, I would only add. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think Peter did a fantastic job of of laying out, you know, all of the all of the consequences. I think on a practical matter um, for hydrogen developers, you could very easily end up with a surplus of hydrogen beyond what the market can take, and and that's because the first. And, and most readily available sources are going to come from oil and gas downstream. Um, that's, that's, you know, we, we already make hydrogen or separate hydrogen um, as, as an industrial gas business. So every, every location where you've got uh, refining and chemicals, um, you've got access to that. Um, all of the things that Peter, Peter described fall into the same area of, of problems. Um, when we talk about battery energy storage, all of these things are um, contingent on metallurgies that you need to be able to accommodate that particular resource. So different classes of ships for carriage of hydrogen are gonna require different metallurgies. Um, electric power systems, some of the, the turbines that can run hydrogen that run hot, different metallurgies. Um, fuel cells for vehicles, if that's the ambition, are very dependent <clears throat> noble metals. Um, you have to be able to source those and build supply chains and everything else. And so um, the excitement about hydrogen is on the front end because people are are looking at the supply sources and, and the readily available hydrocarbon base. Um, after that, it gets progressively more difficult. Um, yeah. but the rest of the supply chain is, is, is uh, dependent on uh, being able to accommodate that particular, you know, that element that that and, and contain it and properly use it safely, um, uh, transport it safely. And and so it's going to take time. I mean, it's yeah. and money, as Peter pointed out, this is not cheap. So circling back to the beginning of our discussion on natural gas, I mean, the other thing people are talking about is one thing you can say in terms of energy transition and natural gas, if you're thinking about transitioning to hydrogen, some people are saying, well, uh, some of the opposition to, to developing natural gas pipelines may be short-sighted because you could use that infrastructure to transport hydrogen um, you know, within a country, uh, not thinking about international transport across the ocean, but uh, you know, within North America or whatever. And, uh, but uh, and I think there, there may be an element of that and experiments are being done and, and we know it seems that we can add a small amount of hydrogen to the natural gas stream and continue mm -hmm. to use existing pipelines but uh to pick up again on on michelle's point uh to go beyond that i think and and transport uh, more a bigger component of hydrogen you probably will need adjustments to the natural gas pipeline system mm -hmm. uh you know which require a lot more investment too but but there is a potential issue there that um uh you could uh, uh sense another sense in which natural gas is a quote transition fuel is it, uh, it may be if we do want to go to, to greater use of hydrogen that um, you can uh, re-engineer the, the natural gas pipeline system to, to carry more hydrogen. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. And experiments. I mean, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that. Um, you know, there are varying opinions, but you know, it looks like you can put upwards of about ten, maybe fifteen percent at a stretch hydrogen in a natural gas stream that, you know, that, that accomplishes a lot of things, but you're still, that's a, that's a small piece of what people imagine. Um, and, a and, and, a, and, and, a, and a really small step forward on something that would require a great deal of thought to be able to build out properly. Mm-hmm. And as you said, I mean, there's, a lot of the existing hydrogen that's being produced is from from hydrocarbons. Um, mm-hmm. But the missing part of the puzzle is is carbon capture and storage, which which still needs some way to go uh, to um, decarbonize this hydrogen. Um, I, I'm not sure what what's happening in the U.S. regarding uh, policies to try and support carbon capture and storage. Um, is there a discussion of uh, Introducing a carbon price, uh, you know, trading system to 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 spur development. I, th- I think the key thing that's needed, as I think you hinted at, is it's it's R and D at the front end, new technology <clears throat> and so forth is the key thing. And it's not clear to me. I mean, uh, uh, putting taxes on the use of energy turns out, I mean, is a very very inefficient way of subsidising basic research. I mean. You, <clears throat> Much be dollar for dollar, you'd be much better off spending the money subsidising the research that needs to be done, uh, rather than taxing uh, other, uh, use of other fuels or energy sources or whatever. It's it's like uh, um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, in Australia they used to talk about um, uh, one of my my former colleagues used to talk about a lot of government policy uh, is like uh, uh, feeding horses. Uh, Feeding flies by feeding horses hay. You, know, <laughs> you feed horses hay to, to feed flies at the other end. And a lot of these policies are very, very indirect. Like that, it seems to me the biggest problem here is is we need to do uh, basic research, and uh, we should be subsidising basic research directly uh, rather than uh, trying to do it indirectly through through these kind of tax mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the counter argument is that uh, if there isn't a tax what what is there to encourage the companies to to but, decarbonize but if, but if the technology is not there all the tax does i mean demand for for energy is very inelastic mm-hmm. poses uh you know big big efficiency big okay. costs you know and it doesn't really achieve very much if the technology is not there it's not there and, and to me the the market failure if you like the biggest market failure if you like is is uh you know, we know that uh, there are problems with investing in new technologies, uh, if, if, particularly basic research, which can't be patented and so on. Uh, you know, the main role, big role for government there is is um, financing this kind of uh, fundamental and basic research. I mean, the applied, if it's, once it gets to the much more applied stage, we've got patents and we've got other ways of, of encouraging uh, Technology that's uh, ready for the market uh, to be commercialized. It, it's really this this basic level, and I think CCS a lot of it, it. It's still at that very basic stage. But what is there to encourage at this stage to encourage companies to invest in the R and D for CCS? Is it just uh, investor pressure and you know customer pressure to to pursue these things to to get the good ECG 
e ESG, sorry, rating. Is well, that people enough? Talk about, people talk well, about the moonshot or the, the Apollo program or whatever. I mean, we know that the government can, um, uh, if it's spending money on certain kinds of technologies, uh, plenty of private firms will come forward to, I mean, I'll look at SpaceX or something, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, so the government can put out um, uh, funds for, for fundamental research. Um, you can have uh, the government lab, supported labs. Uh, renewable energy labs and so forth, working with with companies. I mean, there, there are plenty of plenty of ways of attracting firms to do this research. I think um, uh, much, it's much more direct and focused on the real problem than uh, than things like uh, taxes on energy. Or we have a tax credit um, to support CCS. There's a lot of discussion about that. Um, how to how to preserve it, how to expand it, whether to expand it, and and so on, um, and and so you know a company will invest um, or will be encouraged to invest if something like that exists. It turns out that a lot of the components of CCS are actually already in the R and D mix. I mean, to Peter's point, in terms of advancement, there are things that that we know that need to be improved and different ways of separating um, gases, all of that kind of stuff. Um, the, the, the bigger dilemma is, do you just sequester it? I mean, do you, is that what you want people to invest in? Do you just want to park it? Um, or do you want to try to utilize it? And, and so there's an entire area of material science and, uh, you know, what, what could we do with this? What do we do with the carbon as we decarbonize? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know how how can what can we do with it in in practical ways? What can we push it into? What markets? What products? You know where does it make sense? And I I think all of those are things you know that that would benefit hugely from uh, uh, more R and D spending and a more yeah. focused effort to to think about um, the entire uh, set of possibilities rather than just what people normally think of when they thought when they when they think about decarbonizing or or actually decarbonizing a carbon system. Yeah, that's exactly. I was thinking a lot of these material science and so forth things to do. Yeah. I mean, and in fact, there are problems with just with trying to bury it. I mean, <laughs> you know, is it well? There's also bad? public resistance to that. So you could have a whole other podcast or a whole other conversation about how people feel about burying CO two because it turns out that you know that's 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 about like siding pipelines in many locations. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, any closing remarks, guys? Michelle? <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, um, I was thinking when you opened up your, uh, opened up the podcast, I was wondering, you know, I've, I've thought, I've had this thought a lot, whether people are going to get bored talking about energy transition for 50 years, because basically that's <laughs> what we're going to be yeah. doing. For the next 35 or 50 years, we're going to be talking about the energy transition that's almost happening. Um, I mean, these things take time. And, and in the meantime, people need heat, they need light, they need, uh, they need to be able to function, they need to be able to get around, you need mobility, you need, you need all of these things. And, and they're going to be easiest to satisfy um, from the legacy energy systems and the legacy fuels. That's, that's a fact of the matter. And so, you know, one of, one of the things that humans aren't very good about is, is planning for um, the evolution of things. Um, normal, I mean, you know, what will happen is somebody will come up with an idea that, that could break the log jam 
um, and 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 trigger an, an entirely different way of thinking about things, um, which is how innovation tends to happen. You can't plan innovation. Innovation is not something that you can schedule or, you know, uh, manipulate really. Um, and 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 until then, you know, things have to be able to function in the best way that they can. And and what I think is is is, is both heartening. Um, are all of the examples of what we've been able to do with this resource, with natural gas, that has made such a difference in so many parts of the world. Um, and I think what we have to be careful about are all of the things that we would tend to do um, as we try to, to, to govern it or control it um, that, that don't make sense. And that, that would create problems, that will create distortions, um, and, and those are the, I guess the, the, you know, for me, uh, the major considerations. Yeah, I guess I would, I'd sort of echo that and say, you know, that, um, at the end of the day, uh, even the politicians do want to continue to have economic growth. They have to, otherwise they get voted out of office, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and oftentimes natural gas ends up being the default when you, all these other, uh, plans that people make and so forth, uh, end up creating problems and so on. The, uh, you, you can build natural gas power plants and, and uh, use natural gas, such a versatile fuels we've talked about. Uh, uh, often natural gas comes in to, to save the day <laughs> when, when uh, all these other plans uh, create chaos of various sorts. Um, and, uh, you know, I would just say um, that uh, central planning uh, has never really uh, worked very well in uh, general and, and central planning in the energy system I don't think is, is working very well either. Uh, and when it comes to, to the market test, natural gas, very competitive and uh, continue, will continue to be, uh, to be used and uh, be a strong market for it. And, and uh, these attempts to sort of put roadblocks in the way, I, I, I don't think will we'll alter that. Well, it's been a very interesting discussion and thank you both for, for joining joining us today. Um, this has been another episode of In A Nutshell, the fortnightly podcast hosted by Natural Gas World, where we look at the global news and trends for the gas industry. Thank you and see you next time. Thank you.